right, well, good morning, everyone, and happy Memorial Day weekend again. My name is Brett Milliken, one of the pastors here, for those of you who are new, and have the honor of continuing our series today, Love Has Called My Name, as we're taking a look through the book of Galatians and looking at how Paul's challenge to the church in Galatia and to us today is to seek after and find the love and the grace of God in Christ alone. Now, today we're going to come to somewhat of an abrupt shift in Paul's letter as we enter in to chapter 3 as he's writing to these Christians in Galatia. So before we do that, let's pray and ask God to open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to receive whatever it is he wants us to receive this morning. So Father, we, we thank you today that we're living and breathing, that we've gathered here today in order for more than just religious obligation, but God, to experience you, God, the, the greatest good that the gospel gives us is not just some ethereal eternal life, but it's a relationship, living and breathing relationship with the one who made us. And so, Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would come today so to open up the ears and eyes of our hearts to see you clearly, to hear your voice rightly. And I pray you'd help me to preach your word accurately and to serve these people well as we seek to honor you and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, up to this point, Paul has been using language in this letter like grace and peace to you. And brothers, I'm surprised by what's happening. But here, as we enter into chapter 3, his language is going to shift quite dramatically from concern to correction, right? And before we do that, let me try and explain a little bit of what I believe Paul's motivation is here, his language shift. See, love, love can be expressed in a number of ways. It can be expressed through physical touch. It can be expressed through words of affirmation, expressed through encouragement. I think we all, we love that kind of expression of love. We run to that kind of expression of love. But love can also be expressed in ways that are not quite so positive. Like love can be expressed through frustration and even anger at times, can it? A few weeks ago, my wife and I were taking the kids out to run some errands, and our six-year-old Landon, who we've told numerous times, Landon, you cannot run across the parking lot. We pull a van into the parking space, he hits the automatic door, jumps out, and takes off running. And I'll tell you what I didn't say. I didn't go, wow, buddy, look how fast you are. I didn't go, man, you're so brave. You're just darting in front of that 2,000-pound vehicle. How awesome. No, no, no. I yelled, Landon, stop. And he froze. And I walked up to him. And I leaned over and got in his face. And with a very firm voice, I said, buddy, you remember that squirrel we found on the street in front of our house the other day with his tongue hanging out of his mouth? That's what happens when little bodies hit big cars. I don't want you to end up like that squirrel. Of course, he looked at me, and eyes big as saucers, shook his head, said, yes, sir, daddy. And we walked into the store. Now, I'm sure Landon would have much preferred that I celebrate his quickness, and I applaud his bravery. But that would not have been the loving thing for me to do, would it? No, the loving thing for me to do was to get in his face and say, Landon, you're acting foolish. And it's with that heart and mindset that I believe Paul shifts his tone as we head into chapter 3, verse 1 through 14. It says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the spirit of works by the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, 
or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, as we examine Paul's passionate love for the Galatians today, I want to look at three aspects of what he's saying here in hopes that we might also see God's passionate love for us in this same passage. I want to look at, one, the truth of deception, secondly, the work of faith, and thirdly, the blessing of the curse. Now, Paul begins this chapter by saying, oh, Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? See, Paul is expressing his frustration here because these people he loves so dearly have been tricked. They've been deceived by a lie that Paul is saying they ought to have recognized. Alfred Lord Tennyson, the great British poet, once spoke of deception this way. He said, a lie that is half truth is the darkest of all lies. See, that is the heart of deception. It's a little bit of lie mixed in with a little bit of truth. That darkness is why the Galatians, and honestly, many people today are led astray from the gospel. So as a boy, one of the things I, I used to love to do when I'd get to go visit my dad is he would take us fishing. And the reason I loved it is because the pond we went to was his boss's pond, and he had it constantly stocked with bass and bluegill and brim and crappie. And you were guaranteed to catch at least a dozen fish every time you went. It was awesome. And one of the things my dad showed me in those, those early years was how to bait the hook. Now, we would use nightcrawler worms, which if you know, they're the big, fat, red, juicy ones. And there was a way that you could hook them so that the worm was still free to wiggle and act naturally, but the fish would not notice the hook lying underneath the surface. And if you did it right, you were bound to catch just tons of fish. And if that fish bought into that that lie, because you see what my dad was teaching me there was how to mix a little bit of truth with a little bit of lie. Like the truth is the worm was good for the fish. It was tasty. It was sustenance. Like it was, it was a good thing. If a fish sees a worm, they ought to eat it. The lie, though, was that it was okay for the fish to eat that worm because there was a still shank lying just beneath the surface. And if the fish swallowed the bait, then my dad and I were having a fish fry with some homemade hush puppies, and it was amazing. That is how deception works. There's just enough truth to draw you in, but enough lie to destroy your life. So that's what Paul is trying to warn these Galatians of, is that they were getting hooked on a lie. But what was the hook that the Galatians were swallowing? When we look at the word bewitched in this first verse here, it's the Greek word beskeno. And it literally translates to regard enviously. Now what Paul's saying here is that the Galatians have become envious. Well, what is envy? Well, envy is discontentment with your own life because of what you see in the life of another. This longing for the bigger house, the nicer car, the, the more firm body, or a spouse with a more firm body. 
Maybe it's the newer phone or the, the nicer clothing. Because what you have no longer satisfies you, even though it once did. See, the Galatians, who once found their satisfaction in Christ alone, had bought into the lie and become discontented because they bought into the deception that Jesus was no longer all that they needed. Now, to understand how this happened, we've got to rewind a bit and look to the book of Acts in chapter 13 when this church was actually started. But what had happened is Paul and Barnabas had been sent to Galatia, to this part of the world, to preach the gospel. And as they proclaimed the gospel, the Jewish leadership in this city of Galatia rejected the truth, but the Gentile population received it with gladness. But as they received it, they began to experience persecution. And we see in Acts chapter 13, it closes with this. It says, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now these Galatians had received the gospel into their hearts. Not just a mental belief of, wow, that sounds good. I'll ascend mentally to understanding the logic behind what Jesus did. No, they had trusted the gospel with their whole hearts and said that Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection was enough to reconcile us back to God. No more, no less. But they quickly began to experience persecution at the hands of their neighbors. They were being ostracized. They were being shunned. They were being beaten. And Acts 13 tells us that at least for a little while, their joy endured. They didn't fail in their joy even in the midst of this persecution. But if you've ever experienced suffering for any extended period of time, then you may know full well how it can slowly wear you down and bring you to a place where you're looking to escape. But once you want, what you once stood strong in, you now begin to waver in. See, these Galatians had been worn and tattered by the difficulties and the discomfort of this persecution. And in an effort to find relief, their hearts were open to this bait of envy. This group that Paul calls the Judaizers, these men who would follow Paul along as he would preach the gospel, they would show up after he would leave and they would say, yeah, yeah, sure, Jesus is all good, but if you really want to be pleasing to God, then you've got to culturally become Jewish. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep our dietary laws. You've got to honor certain festivals, use certain language. And, and they were coming into the Galatians and saying, sure, 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 you can believe Jesus died for your sins, but if you really want to be pleasing to God, then you've got to become culturally Jewish. What the Galatians began to experience was this. That was a pretty good compromise. We can keep the name of Jesus, but lose the persecution. And in an attempt to gain a better reputation, not only in their minds as with God, but also with men, with their fellow neighbors, they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Pastor and author Charles Stanley once said this, the best way in the world to deceive believers is to cloak a message in religious language and declare that it conveys some new insight from God. And that is precisely what these Judaizers were doing. The Galatians had taken the bait of being reeled in with this false version of the gospel. And if you and I are not careful, we can find ourselves in the exact same boat. Pun definitely intended. That was supposed to be funnier. We'll scratch, we'll scratch that from the next service. Truth is, ever since the birth of the church, the same bait has threatened followers of Christ for thousands of years. Like this past week, I was able to meet with a, a Chinese pastor and an Ethiopian missionary. 
And both of them, as we talked, were explaining that the, 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 the greatest threat to the gospel in their native lands was tweaking or compromising the truth of the gospel. Now, in, in China, it was to gain spiritual authority, to gain power. In Ethiopia, it's to escape persecution from the growing Muslim and Orthodox populations in that land. But either way, it was a temptation, it was a lure to add to or take away from what Christ has done. See, the cultures have changed, but the pressure remains the same. Pressure to make the gospel more man-centered than Christ-centered. And this happens in one of two ways. Number one, either from subtracting from the gospel. In other words, stop all that nonsense about people being sinful and in need of a Savior. Deny the deity of Christ and just turn him into a good moral teacher or a prophet. A mere man whose example we can learn from or maybe even seek to emulate. Let's make the gospel just another form of spirituality alongside many other possibilities. See, this is an attempt to make yourself more pleasing to people. But the second caution is to add to the gospel. This form tends to come more from religious culture, and though it affirms the sinfulness of man and the deity of Christ, it adds to what Christ did, a works-based righteousness. So yes, Jesus died and rose again, but if you really want to be pleasing to God and be on the varsity Christian team, then you also need to add certain behaviors, some new revelation and knowledge to who Jesus, what Jesus has already done. So two different ways of pursuing the same agenda. It's an ability to define our own righteousness, to have some sense of control over where we stand with God. Both are just a massaging of the ego, though. A way for us to feel important and special based on the perceptions of others. But see, we love that kind of affirmation. I mean, listen, that's why we post the most ridiculous stuff on Facebook. We want people to respond, to tell us how beautiful the meal on our plate looks. Right, to tell us how fun our date looks like it's, it's going. To tell us how, how great the CrossFit workout must be going. To applaud us for what we're doing. We seek that affirmation because there's something hardwired on the inside of us that longs to be the center of attention. Now, if our relationship with God is based on our actions, and that gives us something to be celebrated and affirmed for, doesn't it? We might can become known as the strong Christian, whatever that means. Or maybe the reputation of being the cool Christian who's more socially palatable to to culture because we don't take that Jesus stuff so rigidly. But listen, the ability to improve your cultural standing by doing something is not at all what the gospel offers. No, the gospel gives us the opportunity to do, wait for it, absolutely nothing. To simply receive the grace that God has given us in Christ Jesus. See, the gospel is meant to point to God's glorious perfection, not our own. But hearing comments like, man, you are awesome at doing nothing. Or, dude, you receive that grace like a boss. That doesn't quite scratch that itch the same way, does it? No, there's something in us that longs to be the center of attention. That is the bait the Galatians swallowed and It's the deception that we too can swallow if we're not rightly understanding point number two, the work of faith. Paul goes on to say this, let me ask you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you not being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing the faith? 
Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And let me just make one thing very clear. Paul's message to the Galatians was not believe Jesus and then live however you want to live. So we'll see as we get further into this book of Galatians and really in every single other letter that Paul wrote that he affirms good works. He, he calls us to live righteously. But he wants to make sure that the Galatians and other believers realize that those good works were not what made them pleasing to God. In other words, what Paul is trying to make the point of here is this. Works don't produce faith, but true faith will always produce works. So the Galatians had genuinely experienced God's grace. I mean, they were seeing their lives transform before their very eyes. They were but simply by trusting in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to be all that was needed to reconcile them back to God. Listen, they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God had come to live inside of them. They had seen miracles taking place day in and day out. And all of this had taken place before any idea of circumcision or dietary laws or festivals or languages ever were introduced to them. See, and this is Paul's point. He's, he's saying, listen, before you heard of these silly concepts, God had already demonstrated to you his love. Not because you deserved it, but simply because he loves you. So why are you now believing this lie that if you started in faith, that somehow you have to keep and maintain God's love by performing for him? So to prove this point, Paul takes us back to Genesis 15, where it says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. He said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, remember, Paul looks at this verse, this passage, and he says, this was God preaching the gospel to Abraham. And he says, Abraham's faith ought to be an example to us of what truly pleases God. So let's take a look at what it is. Well, God tells Abraham he's going to bless him with a son, and from that son will come a nation, and from that nation will come an heir, an heir through whom the whole world will be blessed. Now, this is a foreshadowing, a promising of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Abram trusted God to fulfill this promise. And it says God counted that trust to him as righteousness. Now, this word counted is an accounting term that literally means to have value credited to your account. Now, let me help you understand what this means. Now, let's say you've got a friend who's a billionaire, right? Everybody's got one of those. Let's say that billionaire friend was like, you know, I'm going to hook you up with $10 million. Now, let's say at the beginning of the day, your bank account had $1,000 in it probably being generous. 
At the end of the day, after that transfer goes through, your account now has $10,001,000 in it. Now, this wasn't a wage. It wasn't a paycheck. It wasn't something you earned. It was simply a gift, a value that belonged to another transferred into your account, and now it becomes your value. You now have $10,001,000 in your account because one transferred it over to you. That's this word counted. And God is telling us through scripture that Abraham trusted God in faith. And God's righteousness, because of that trust, transferred into Abraham's account so that he became the righteousness of God. That's what that word means. Then Abraham asked for a sign to know that this promise, this righteousness, will indeed be his. And God gives them some, what we think are kind of some odd instructions. He says, go get a bunch of, bunch of animals, cut them in half, and then set one part on this side of the street and one part on this side of the street. And so Abraham does this. Now, to you and I, that sounds quite disgusting. But in their day and age, this was actually common practice. When two people, when two parties would come together to form a covenant with one another, they would take an animal. They would divide the animal in half, cut it in half, set the part of it here, part of it here, and then both parties would walk in between the pieces of the animal as a way of saying, if I don't keep my covenant promise to you, may I be cut off and divided like these animals. In other words, my life is on the line here. My life is my vow. But this covenant is a little different because Abraham cuts up the animals but he never passes through them. See, God is the only one that walks through the pieces, and he does so in two re- different representations of himself, as a smoking cauldron and a flaming torch. And this is why Paul says that God is preaching the gospel to Abraham in this passage, because this is God's way of saying, I have made a covenant promise to you, Abraham, and because you lack the ability to keep your side of the covenant, to obey perfectly, I am passing through the pieces to fulfill both my part and yours. So not only may I be cut off if I don't keep my part of the deal, but may I be cut off if you don't keep your part of the deal also. In other words, Abraham's righteousness was not based on his ability to keep the law. And how could it be? This is 430 years before God ever gave one law to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's a few chapters before he called Abraham to circumcise himself and all the men in his camp. In other words, God had called Abraham to do nothing at this point except what? Trust. And Abraham trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is why Paul says that those who have faith are the true sons of Abraham. Because to become a child of God, a descendant of Abraham, is by faith, not works. But the great irony is that these Galatians are chasing after this lie and this that promises to give them something they actually already possess. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The promise given to Abraham. And when you understand that God loves you this way, not because you are lovable, but because he is love himself, then you'll have a desire to want to live righteously. To want to honor God with your actions. To show others how amazing he is. How merciful and gracious he has been. But those works are the fruit that grows out of the seed of faith, not the other way around. So it's not about being perfect in law, but rather being perfect in faith. 
then how can we be perfect in faith? Well, simply by trusting God. (laughs) Even if it's just a little trust at this point in your life, if it's enough to just say, I'm not sure how all this is going to work out, what it all means, but I know I need you, Jesus, and you've made a way for me to have you, and I trust that, even if I trust nothing else. The scripture says that's being perfect in faith. And that faith brings righteousness of Christ into your account. And in that same faith, we live life to the glory of God. Not to earn his favor, but because we already have it. So the grace that saves you is the same grace that keeps you and grows you as you pursue him. To pursue God's pleasure in any other way is to place yourself under a burden and a pressure that will ultimately crush you unless you see point number three, the blessing of the curse. Paul goes on to say, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, that blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now here's where Paul rips the bait away and reveals the hook just beneath the surface. So the bait is a life that makes you more pleasing to God and more pleasing to people. But here's the hook. Paul says those who rely on the law are cursed. Now notice, he doesn't say those who obey the law, but those who rely on the law. He's echoing Jesus here when Jesus in Matthew 5 says, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. See, Jesus kept the law perfectly. So now you and I are free from having to rely on our obedience to the law as a means by which God accepts us. But Paul says, if you deny that grace, that imputed righteousness that Christ has given us, and you rely on the works of the law, you put yourself under a curse. Now, what is that? What is a curse? Well, a curse is a covenantal concept. And covenant is a relational concept. So this is what curses, what results when you violate your relationship with God, which leads to the absence of his presence in your life. So if you choose to have your relationship with God built on your ability to keep the law, to do enough good, then you're always going to find God's presence lacking because it will never be good enough. So sure, you may be good a little, you may be good a lot, but you'll never be good enough to the point of perfection. Not just outwardly, but in your inward motivations as well. And that is what God requires. This is why Martin Luther, in writing his commentary on this chapter, says this, the law terrorizes the conscience. See, Luther realized that if his relationship with God was based on his ability to do, on on his works, then how could he possibly know when he had done enough to be truly righteous? See, the law is what I base God's pleasure with me on. They're nothing short of complete and absolute perfection, both inwardly and outwardly, has to be the goal that I shoot to obtain in order to be confident that I've done enough. It's in Galatians 5, in a couple weeks, we'll see Paul actually drive this point home when he talks about circumcision. He says, listen, if circumcision is what pleases God, then why not just cut the whole thing off? Now, it's it's sarcasm at its best, but Paul's trying to drive home the logical progression of what works-based righteousness will inevitably lead to. 
If doing a little bit of good is, is what pleases God, then doing more good will please God more, right? So Paul says, man, why, why stop at the foreskin? There's plenty more there to remove. If that's what pleases God, go the whole way. And that is the curse of what works-based righteousness brings to our lives. It's a constant burden you have to carry. And you'll never actually be able to carry it because it's going to crush you because you never know when you've done enough. You see, now for us, cultural Judaism may not be what we're tempted to add to the gospel. For us, it may be something else. For us, it may be our church attendance. Maybe serving in multiple ministry areas. Maybe it's the number of hours you spend reading your Bible or praying. Maybe it's that pursuit of being the good enough spouse or the perfect parent. It could be any number of things that you feel you have the ability to do for the purpose of making yourself more pleasing to God and more pleasing to others. But if that's the case, let me just warn you right now. There is no end to what that thing will demand of you in order for you to feel you've done enough. So that's why we burn out of serving in ministry areas. That's why we walk away from marriages that are difficult. That's why we stop reading our Bible and spending time in prayer. Because no matter how much more we do, we can never seem to shake the feeling that it's still not enough. And that what we're doing isn't producing the blessing we thought it would. So you become a prisoner of your own morality. A prisoner in need of being set free. And that, my friends, is where the curse can become a blessing because in doing so it points us to the fact that we need someone to rescue us from that prison to free us from this curse and that's exactly what Paul is trying to remind these Galatians of now, there is one who was able to keep the law perfectly Jesus the promise keeper bore the penalty of our promise breaking and was cut off in our place divided for our sin. And he was the flaming torch that passed through the pieces. He lost God's presence in his life so that you and I could enter into a covenant relationship with God ourselves. See, when I used to go fishing as a kid with my dad, there were a countless number of times where I'd be reeling it in and my line would catch and the pole would bend and I'd think, oh, I got the big one. Only to realize my line had gotten snagged on a tree limb. And inevitably, when that would happen, the bait would get knocked off the hook and some lucky fish swimming by got a free meal. Well, friends, that's precisely what Jesus has done for you and for me. He took the hook of the curse of the law and hung it on the tree of Calvary so you and I could get the free blessing of God's presence in our lives. And here's what that means practically. We no longer have to work to earn God's pleasure. We can now do amazing things like loving others unconditionally, serving faithfully, giving sacrificially, even to the point of putting our lives on the line because we know God is already pleased with us. He already loves us. He's already accepted us as his because of what Jesus has already done. So it means that we don't just get forgiveness, but we get God. See, if forgiveness is all we got, then we're still on the hook to do better, right? I mean, maybe we've been forgiven for what we've done, but it's almost like spiritual probation. I got my eye on you. But if we have righteousness, it means we're free to fail. That means we're free from becoming angry when others fail us. It means we no longer have to live as servants trying not to disappoint our master. 
We can now live as children seeking to honor our Father who has loved us so deeply. We can love because he first loved us. Because we long for others to know what being loved like that feels like. And maybe you find yourself hooked today. Getting tugged around by the perceptions of others. By the pressure to have to perform to be something you know you can never fully be. Well, friends, Christ has come to cut the line. Remove the hook from your soul. So you can experience the blessing of God's pleasure. He swallowed the curse for you. So you could experience the blessing of God's presence in your life. Listen, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian here today, we all need to fall into the arms of grace this morning and let the gospel of Jesus be the one thing that hooks our hearts. But how do we do that? Well, simply to be honest with your own heart. You have to ask yourself, is there anything or anyone other than Jesus that I'm trying to build my reputation on? I'm trying to earn God's favor with. We have to acknowledge whatever that is. And then just cry out to Jesus in whatever faith we have. Say, Lord, I need you to rip this hook out of my soul. And reveal the love of the Father to me. Friends, all you need to come to Christ, all you need for his righteousness is Nothing. That is so difficult for us. Say, I come with nothing and I have nothing to offer and I receive everything that you have for me. But that is the scandal of grace in the gospel. It's that Christ has done enough. He's come to be what you could not be. Live the life you have not lived, die the death you should have died. Rose again to conquer sin, death, hell, and Satan so that you and I could enter into the promises of of God, as descendants of Abraham, as recipients of the true heir, Jesus Christ. If you've never received that grace, that blessing today, I want to pray for us. If you have received that and somehow in your life you've gotten led astray by these these false promises of some new revelation, I want to pray for us. We might be the kind of people who seek to honor and glorify Christ and say, Christ, you are enough for me. So, Father, we come before you now with great humility, trusting that you and you alone are good. You and you alone are righteous. You and you alone are perfect. And yet, God, even in our fallen nature, you have come and extended to us that righteousness. Not because we've earned it, not because we were pleasing in your sight. God, your word says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God, I pray for those who are here who may, maybe never put their trust in you. Maybe they've thought this, this notion in their mind that, well, to come to Jesus means I've got I've to change all these things and I've got to be all these things and I've got to do all these things. God, I'm praying right now by your spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts? See that all we need to have you is nothing. You've already done it all on our behalf. Lord, I pray for those of us, Lord, who wrestle with wanting to add things to what you've already done, to somehow want to feel like we can prove ourselves to you. Oh, God, as a father myself, that, that just breaks my heart to think that my kids would, would come to me and say, Daddy, look what I did. Don't you love me now? And God, that's what we do so many times. 
Lord, I pray, would you let the truth and revelation of your perfect, unconditional love flood our souls in this moment. Change us. Set us free from the prison of our own morality. That through us, a lost and broken world, we see how truly glorious you are. In Jesus' name.